This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a senior artistic producer of the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis and a former artistic director at City Theater, where under her leadership, some 200 plays were produced. She's a freelance director with extensive experience in new play and musical development. Coming up is fellow theater junkie and arts angel, Tracy Brigden. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Hey, Pat. How are you? I'm really good. I'm so happy to talk to you. Well, and I'm excited about your your new position at the Guthrie. It's it's well-deserved, certainly a theater of note. You've gained the reputation that you belong exactly where you are. I'd love to know what that new title means being a senior artistic producer. I'd love to know too. I've only been there two months. I'm still figuring it out, but really it, it is central to the position is the actual on the ground realization of Joe Hodge, the artistic director's vision for the theater. The Guthrie is an enormous asset here in the twin cities. It's got a building that has three theaters and three restaurants it's a public space where people come from all over the world, really, to just check out the space like the Sydney Opera House or Lincoln Center or Plaza. They come up. There's a, you know, it's a famous building designed by Jean Nouvel that has this incredible cantilever section of it that goes out over the Mississippi River. And people come from all over just to take a picture over in the cantilever. And we produce 10 plays. The theater's almost never dark in the season. There's not downtime like a lot of other theaters where I've worked, the biggest stage is a thrust stage that's 1,100 seats. Mm. The, the smaller theater is a proscenium that's 700, and then there's a black box that's 200. So there's huge amounts of programming that go on in those spaces all year round, like education programs and training programs at the University of Minnesota and all kinds of other things. It's an, a pretty enormous job just to kind of put my arms around the artistic staff mm-hmm. and that are the actual production of each of those 10 plays a season while at the same time helping vision the future for the theater and the future seasons of the theater and how the theater can keep growing and expanding to serve its community. It has a national standard for excellence there in both the theatrical production and performance. So folks that have not made their way to the Guthrie certainly have heard of it because they've been doing classic and contemporary plays for years and I guess it's a rather exciting thing to move from one place that you've been for a long period of time and being a newbie at another place that you know you're entering something where everybody's focus is to make the best art they can, to to shine the light on the human condition in a, in a new way. Uh, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And I've worked at some very large theaters. I worked at Manhattan Theater Club for a long time. I worked at Hartford Stage. And as you said, City Theater in Pittsburgh, City Theater was a much smaller theater. The annual budget of City Theater was around $4 million. The annual budget of the Guthrie is around $40 million. So um, there's a bit of a difference there. Yeah. Better cast parties, I guess, huh? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Although in COVID times, we don't have cast parties. Let me just make a nod to the Guthrie, though, that their leadership during the pandemic, along with some of the Broadway houses, the idea of shutting down was really, really a difficult one to do. And yet they they led with their chin on that. And so I, I really appreciated that because it helped other people in other industries say, well, if the show Hamilton's not playing in production or if the Guthrie's not doing a show, right, then, then we ought to follow their lead. Yeah, 
Absolutely. No, I mean, and it, it was an incredibly challenging time for everybody in the American theater trying to pivot in that moment and figure out, you know, everybody desperately trying to keep staff on salary as long as they could and and trying to figure out how to move to this, you know, new Zoom kind of theater for a little while to keep subscribers engaged in some way. And everybody's still coming out of it. A, a, you know, a behemoth like the Guthrie included. I mean, we still have growing pains from coming out of, of COVID and we're not all out of it yet. I mean, trying to keep Christmas Carol on during the winter with an enormous cast, including children, the COVID safety procedures are extraordinary. And amazingly, we only had to cancel once and it wasn't for COVID. It was for a, a mechanical failure in the set situation. So yeah, it, it's a big haul for everyone, but I I do sort of think we are all seeing the light at the end of the tunnel finally. I mean, the Guthrie is producing a full 10 plays season this year, so it's happening. Well, let's go back to a very basic core need, which is I, I'm curious about what you think the necessity of theater is in the world. Oh, wow, Pat. That's I know a it's big. big question. I know, but you are you're a senior artistic producer. You're not just a junior. <laughs> I wouldn't ask that of some intern, but let me tell a little story, and maybe this informs my view of it. So my first year as artistic director at City Theater, the first play that I chose to um, produce and direct as artistic director was a play by a British playwright named Helen Edmondson called The Clearing. And the first preview of that play of the first showing as an artistic director happened to end up falling on September 14th, 2001. So three days after 9-11. And when 9-11 happened, we were hot in tech rehearsals and about to open this whole thing. And we had all this endless conversation about should we go on and should we not and all that stuff. And we decided we were going to just press on that we all needed to come together in a room. And probably, you know, when people ask me like, what's your most extraordinary moment in the theater? I never expected that my first moment as an artistic director would be speaking from a stage saying, thank you for gathering in this terrible time of tragedy, but that's what it ended up being. And that night of the theater was the most extraordinary of my life because the people were so lost in that moment. We all remember how lost we were. And the fact that we could gather together in a room and share an experience and that play happened to have, huge resonance to the moment because it was about the Cromwellian Irish English troubles. So it was about warring tribes. So it had some resonance, but the level of sobbing and tears and applause and hugging and amazing response we got at the end of that play was just about how, when we come together to share an experience and share our humanity, amazing connection and magic can happen. And I think at the very core, that's, what we do that's different than the movies. And I love the movies and I love television and I love any form of storytelling. But the fact that we are gathered with the live humans on the stage telling us a story is so basic in mm. primary and human existence. I mean, think about it. We all grow up with a bedtime story at eight o'clock at night of some yeah. kind, you know, or whatever. When we were kids, you, you know, you read a book, you tell a story, you sit around the dinner table. It's your bedtime story. Going to the yeah. theater is replicating that. Yeah, yeah. It's it, the humanity is very much that that moment at the campfire. For me, the word theater it encompasses a place, but also an event and a profession and a, you know, a hobby. There's just so many unique things. It's a community. It's such an interesting and tricky word. 
because it's a place that we tell stories and that we laugh and we cry. And we, I think we took it for granted to me a little bit before the pandemic and mm-hmm. with the absence of it, people realized, oh, the gathering is not just about going to the place. Mm-hmm. It's about having a connection with one another and the performers thrive off of our response to them. Mm-hmm. Like it, like all of it makes a difference, yeah. whether that's a musical concert or a, a play or any number of things. Absolutely. And, you know, we're living life as theater in many ways in that the curtain goes up at birth and down at death and, you know, everything <laughs> else in, in the middle is art unfolding for before uh-huh. our eyes. But we don't really realize that by dramatizing it, we can learn so much about each other. That's the, the slightly more cerebral part of it for me is is that that very thing, learning so much about each other. Because that's what, when I'm looking at what do I want to program in a season, I don't want to see story. Yes, I'd like to recognize myself on stage or recognize a situation on stage. And that's the comforting theater. But I'm much more interested in looking at something through a different lens or another point of view or a different experience or a different place or a different culture I know nothing about because I'm curious. And I think true theater goers are curious because they want to they want to have their eyes opened or their heart opened in an, in a new way when they go to the theater and we can tell those kind of stories and share them with each other and and that keeps making us grow I think every time in whatever form we get a new story. Well, and to for full disclosure to the listener, we have worked together uh, when you were at the City Theater. You commissioned a work one time that was a uh, for for a Christmas a production and I guess I'm interested most people probably don't know about the commissioning business, mm-hmm. but yeah. when you set out to commission a work, a new work, not what are you looking for, but what is the process of then introducing that to the venue or when you have that power to, to commission, let's just say, <laughs> what salesmanship goes on there where you say to somebody, I think this, it's time for us to invest in this voice. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of theaters have realized it's a really good way to get a great piece of theater that they get first dibs on at the same time investing in an artist and that they believe in and and helping that artist focus on their art. I think a lot of theaters now have like commissioning programs of one kind or another. They have some pot of money they set aside that maybe once a year or 20 times a year, depending on the size of the theater, they can give a chunk of change to a writer or writers if it's a musical and say, make something for this theater and we will work on it together and we will support you through that process. And then we will hopefully put it on our stage at the end of the day. And I think that's the best kind of commissioning when you're really doing it with an aim toward a production. It doesn't always work out for a variety of reasons, but I think the aim should always be, I'm in this with the, for the long haul with you as an artist. There are different ways that I've done commissions with you with, you know, the first commission I made at City Theater was to Christopher Durang. And I knew that that was another Christmas commission early on that I knew I wanted a, a Christmas piece. And we talked about a bunch of things. And I, I had an idea that I wanted a send up of A Christmas Carol. And he came up with what ended up being Mrs. Bob Cratchit's Wild Christmas Binge, which was Mrs. Cratchit gets sick of her miserable life and goes on a drinking bender and ends up with Scrooge. And it was hilarious and brilliant. And it was, you know, a great Christmas piece. So sometimes you can say, I want this very specific thing. Sometimes you can say, Hey, Pat, I want you to write something for me. Do you have some ideas bubbling around? Can you, 
can we talk about a couple of them? And a writer will come with two or three different ideas and you'll say, hey, I think I like that one. Can we can we keep, can we keep going on that one? And, and a commission can emerge from that. For anybody artistic thinking about it, when you are writing it for somebody else, you also, you want to draw their crowd and you want to leave people thinking. The interesting challenge for me was more that it was a Christmas show that I was writing in March, April, May, June, like racing into Christmas and putting my mindset in a Christmas tone in May where I kind of had to not be a crazy person. You know what I mean? Like I didn't put Christmas carols on at my house in my bathing suit. Oh, that's what I imagine. I know. (laughs) Yeah. So I would fly places and make snowmen in other countries and then come back and write about it. No, I I did find that we did it on on a short leash, that particular one. So I found this really interesting personal pressure that as I got closer and closer to the date, and your theater was so supportive and every department, costume department, scenic design, it was fantastic to have people where you just throw things out on a wish list and you show up and they've built it or they, you know, they're, they're sending you back samples or colors or whatever. And you realize, oh, they're all doing their job full throttle. I have got to make this a good play. <laughs> and because you're doing a brand new work, an original work, there is still an opening night, which is really the first time that everybody gets to experience it. And uh, mm-hmm. leading into it, the few weeks that I was there prior, I remember saying to myself, I'm not watching TV. I can either be writing this play or watching TV, but I can't do both. No television until this is finished, right? That was going to be my, my treat. That's grim. <laughs> but but it was really, you know, I've had a couple of, of places in my career where I've been able to suddenly be a member of a bigger staff and a bigger troupe mm-hmm. and create really wonderful things by having the support, by having people. You know, I found one of the clunkier things for me because I'm a comedy writer was having a dramaturg, having mm-hmm. a person that was the research person and saying to me, well, that really wouldn't happen in this area. And I go, but it's mm-hmm. funnier that way. And they'd go, well, that's not really how it's pronounced <laughs> in Pittsburgh. And and so it, it, for a comedian, you know, we get really loosey-goosey. But overall, I began to go, oh, I see how valuable that would be, particularly if you were doing something historic or you wanted all the details to be exact right. You know, that kind of a thing that wasn't so farcical. Mm-hmm. It really, I don't know, that was an eye-opener to me. And you, mm-hmm. in all your new works, is there always somebody dramaturgically focused on the content creation? Yeah, I mean, certainly at the Guthrie, there's a very long-time dramaturg there, Carla Steen, who's a genius. And she is a genius at both, if you're doing a Shakespeare play, helping the director figure out what do all those crazy words mean and you know, the history of that history and all that stuff, you know, all the research, but she's also great at helping a writer move the play along through its process of becoming a better and better play from just a a writing point of view and everything in between, because obviously new plays have research needs as well, as you say, not every theater has the luxury of having a literary manager or a dramaturg. You know, you had Carlin Aquiline who was the longtime literary manager and dramaturg at city, but there's that's also the role of an artistic director. I mean, certainly, even though at City I had Carlin, I was very much always in the seat with the writer and the director saying, hey, you know, the second act's a little too long. What about is the scene making sense? And that, that kind of dramaturgy that to help shape that piece. So and then as a director of new plays, even more so. I'm very much in the dramaturg seat. And there's a lot of people that would argue you don't need a dramaturg if you have a good enough director. 
but I think it's not too many cooks. It can be both and really help in different ways. Yeah, I think in original work, development is tricky to do always from one singular point of view without some challenge. At least then a director or a writer can say, let me explain. Here's what my intent was. And they could say, fantastic, you're missing one part of that that you're now explaining to me, which wasn't on the page. So theater's an almost impossible thing to do alone. Even a one-person show is littered with uh, lighting designers. Yeah, especially if if they've if everyone's done their job right and it looks effortless. Yeah, that's the thing. When it looks effortless, then it's really the most effort. Yeah. Some, sometimes. So. Yeah, I recently saw the Mike Birbiglia piece about mm-hmm. the old man in the pool. I don't know if you saw that show. Or I not. haven't seen it yet. No. Well, Mike's a great storyteller. He's very funny. Yeah. He he knows how to turn corners in and out of pathos. He's standing in front of what looks like the deep end of a pool. That's Mm -hmm. kind of got a curve to it. And the Mm -hmm. subtlety in the lighting is so amazing for different times that just the amount of change where it changes the tone of of the way you see it. And you go, you kind of ask yourself, wait, was that pool a little bit lighter a minute ago? What, what, what? Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. We're in an area that's just a little heavier content and it required Mm -hmm. this different kind of shadow or something. But it is so ethereal till the end of the show you keep going oh my gosh they've been transitioning this whole time that's really supporting his storytelling yeah i mean there's huge amounts of storytelling in every aspect of design of theater and you know some of it is more obvious than others but something like a lighting design moving you from day to night without you even realizing it is extraordinary and that's an amazing designer telling helping tell the story Mm -hmm. let's talk about content development. I know we just sort of tipped on it here with the idea of a commission, mm-hmm. but you worked on a lot of original works in many capacities as a director, as a producer. Is there a piece that you directed the original work that made the greatest impact on you? I'll talk about one thing that I thought was a really fun and, and special one was I kept thinking about the fact that in American theater, we have to plan our whole seasons far ahead of time because everybody's desperate for subscribers. Now you have to announce your season in, you know, February to start getting subscribers in March to pay for the next year. So there's this huge pressure that there's this far out planning of plays. And I like to think that that's part of the reason why it's very challenging for Americans to have plays about current politics, because by the time they get to the stage, by the time, even if the moment the ink was dry, you said, okay, I'll do it at my next available slot which it'd still be a year and a half from now. Mm -hmm. And so the politics would be stale. And so I decided a way I would take a giant gamble and and change that was that I told Keith Redine, the playwright, American playwright Keith Redine, that I would give him a slot in the next season. And no matter what he wrote, I would put it on. But I wanted it to be about American politics, current American politics. So he wrote a great play called The Missionary Position, that was about a presidential um, wannabe on the election trail. I won't go into the plot of it, but it was very like current zeitgeist moment politics. And we put it on and it was a great success. And part of the reason it could be so fresh and so up to the minute is because I took this huge gamble. Mm -hmm. I didn't know whether he was going to write a piece of garbage that I'd still have to put on in some way, but he didn't. And I did invest in a playwright that I really trusted and believed in. So I knew it would probably not be a piece of garbage. 
but that was a really fun commission that was risky, but paid off huge dividends. And, you know, he turned it in soon enough before the production that we could do a little bit of work on it, do a quick reading, do a quick rewrite. And we really worked on it. You know, one of the things I love directing new work with the playwright in the room is that the playwright then can be responsive to what's actually happening with the actors in the room and the moment of finding the exact right way to tell that story. And great writers can re- can go home at night and rewrite. Yes. I had a play by Michael Hollinger called Hope and Gravity. There was one crucial scene that we just battled and battled. It was a world premiere through the rehearsal process. We couldn't crack the nut of it. We couldn't crack the nut of it. We finally got to the dress rehearsal night or maybe it was the first preview night. And in front of an audience, all of a sudden it became crystal clear. And I said, Michael, I know what it needs to be. And we went and did notes until midnight. He went home at midnight to the actor housing at city theater and madly wrote, he emailed pages to Carlin by 10 o'clock in the morning. By noon, we rehearsed it. The actors went on that night for the second preview with that scene with book in hand because they didn't quite know it. There's a whole new scene. And we made an announcement for the show and said, you know, we're in new play theater and we're in the second preview of this world premiere. And Michael wrote a scene last night. We want to try it. And you'll the first people and you may be the last people to ever see this scene. And the audience just loved it. Right. They loved it. And it was, it did crack the play and it made the play so much better. And by the next night they were off book and that was the play yeah. that's published. Well, that is some of the thrill of theater. It is live and we are always trying to create some improvement and really nail it down. Uh, I think in my latest one man show, it was quite uh, entertainment from an insurance standpoint where I thought, oh, I'll make it funny. I'll, I hope they laugh. And I had an intermission in it and realized the intermission was ruining the story. It meant taking a break and, you know, there was some emotional turn towards my dad. And when I cut the intermission in my head, I thought, oh, well, now this is way too long of a play. So now I have to cut out stuff. And I actually was cutting out all those insurance policy laughs that were really an insecure thing I kept in to be liked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the second night, it all made sense to me. Oh, I'm telling a story and this is the story. All of that other stuff was just eye candy in the way of me even seeing what the story was. So it is a tricky thing to do. And certainly without, I did have a director on the piece. So I was like, we got to fix this thing before tomorrow. You know, we, <laughs> I don't really want to be out there for applause. I want something to resonate that they take home. It is hard when you wear multiple hats because the performer in you definitely wants the kudos or the pat on the back. Yeah. But the writer in me overrode myself. So that was good. That's good. I mean, I've done a couple of one person shows where it's somebody writing their own like autobiographical story like you did. And I've had to, in two occasions say, okay, you're not the writer anymore. You have to stop writing because they've said it was really throwing them in performance because they're in performance going, oh, that line didn't work. I really got to remember to, oh, right. I'm still acting. You know, like, no, I, I love that. I love that yeah. piece of advice because there are many people who are multiple hat wearers. I've gone out to represent and sell other people's work or put them on tour. I always have to say to somebody, one, the one person show, I'm talking to you as a producer. Mm-hmm. Our phone calls, you're the producer of the show. Please do not get offended if I tell you something that I hear from some other theater or other place, 
because right. the actor doesn't have to hear this, but you have to hear this as a producer. Yeah. You're in charge right. of that drummer that's with you. And if that drummer is messing up, I'm not talking yeah. to you. I don't dislike you as a person. The producer has a problem. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes you yeah. really have to zone in on what hat a person's mm -hmm. wearing and, and give the note very specifically. I'm curious as a director, and I know you to be a very good one, even in our brief exchanges, you were sort of overlooking my commission and kind of in the room as a director. In terms of when you were giving notes diplomatically, if you've got something big or you're trying to make a change in an actor who might be struggling, is there a, is there a way that you approach it systematically? Is there a, or is it just sort of mm -hmm. being a good midwife? I think about it from the point of view of when I've been a freelance director in somebody else's house and that artistic director is giving me notes. So I think about, you know, being an artist in the room. The first thing I say to almost anyone, whether I'm being an artistic director, talking to a director or a playwright or a director talking to an actor or a playwright or whatever is like after the first preview and we're doing notes is tell me how you thought it went tonight. Mm. What do you want to work on tomorrow? Because a lot of the time I find as a director being freelance, the artistic director starts giving me notes and they're all the same notes I have. And you just find yourself going, no, no, no. I have that note too. See, look, it's right here on the pad. I really did know. I noticed that that part was bad. <laughs> I'm going to fix it. I promise. So I kind of want to know what they, I want to get out of the way, the stuff that's the obvious stuff that we can both agree on. Like that really didn't work. We're going to do something about that. So I'm not being patronizing. Right. Way. And then perhaps once we clear that out, I can go, okay, this is what I saw tonight. And I try really hard to do everything from the point of view of here was my experience of the, the story that what, you know, that it could be a moment. It could be an act. It could be the whole play. The story I saw was this. Is that what you meant? Yeah. Good. Good question. So like, because sometimes if you're just saying, I don't think you should do it that way. It's, it's not, maybe that is the way that the story they're wanting to tell. But if I'm saying it looked like you were really sad in that moment, is that what you meant for me to think about that? character in that moment, sometimes they're like, no, I totally what didn't mean to be sad. And so that can be helpful. The same thing with a, with a playwright, you can be saying, this is what I thought you were leading me to believe was going on with the characters. Is that the story I was supposed to be following? Is that the thing I was supposed to be wanting to hoping to find out what was going to happen with? What am I rooting for to happen is often a thing I find myself saying the thing I do a lot when I'm about to direct a play is I tell the, I ask the playwright to tell me the movie they had in their head when they were writing it. Because, you know, I, I'm a writer also, and I, you know, you definitely have some movie in your head. Sometimes it's a theater movie and sometimes it's a movie movie. Sometimes it's some weird dream movie. I don't know, but there is some movie you have in your head as you're writing. And so I'm trying to get from them, like, what were you imagining when this was coming to be in your brain? With anybody in any form of creation, you want to know what they think their story is. And it, yeah. and you find sometimes that they will self-correct, even though they might have a big slash a logo and a nice tagline. Or whatever. Mm -hmm. No, what we're really trying to do is this. You say, oh, well, that's not what you're putting out in the world. Totally. With everything. I mean, with everything, it's sort of like going back to... Okay, why are we having this meeting? Like, what is our purpose? What are we What are we trying to accomplish here? Like, that is, is so many times in life, if you go back to that, you solve your problem. I think often you do because people go, oh, well, we're having the meeting because we always have a Tuesday meeting. It's like, we have no yeah. reason to meet. Right. I ask people, why is this on Zoom? People got used to Zoom and so mm -hmm. they got excited about it. But 
I don't mind an intimate Zoom meeting, but I am way over the let's meet for a drink with 40 people and, you know, know. somebody's feeding carrots to their horse and that's making the loudest noise. So we got to look at that. You're in Austin. You have horses. Well, we got all kinds of crazies here, you know, but now you've moved to Minneapolis. So I know from the many years of my touring, the people there still come out. If it's, you know, knee deep in snow, they are used to it. Even just this week, we got a giant dump of snow and there were blizzard conditions and at, uh, and it was 11 below right before the holidays. And we're trying to crank out Christmas Carol and battle against COVID and battle against snow. And it there are a lot of obstacles. But yeah, the, tw- the people of the Twin Cities, they love their theater. There's, I forget what people said, 60, 80, some huge amount of theaters here. I have, I've only lived here two months. I, I live in St. Paul now and the theaters in Minneapolis. And I have not met a busboy, a taxi driver, a waitress, a sales, anybody that when I, they say, why did you move here? And I say the Guthrie theater and they go, Oh, well the Guthrie, of course. Mm. Oh, I love the Guthrie. It's amazing to me how everybody embraces that theater as their own. And they've all been attending since they can remember and their families went every year and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's a real theater going town. Well, I found and this is not to put down a town like Los Angeles. There are plenty of fine actors, but there aren't theater actors like there are film and television folks that can pull off rehearsing a scene and doing it in small bits or whatever. Theater acting requires stamina to maintain a character, to be in character on stage for the entire show. Mm-hmm. And also once you're let go, once the director steps away from the piece, you may be in it for a year. So maintaining some consistency. And I did find that when I auditioned actors around the country, that Minneapolis and Chicago, you know, certainly New York, there were certain places where they came in memorized. They were Mm -hmm. prepared in the first audition. L.A., I found quite a bit more. They're reading the sides off the page like it means nothing. And it just was sort of disconcerting to read people there. Yeah. No, there's an amazing acting community here, theater community here. I mean, I've only just seen a tiny bit of theater since I've been here outside the Guthrie, and I've gone through a couple sets of auditions, but I'm really impressed with the the folks here. And yeah, I think that's true. I think the theater towns, I mean, Pittsburgh was that. I was a snooty New Yorker when I moved to Pittsburgh and didn't expect there to be nearly the, the big pool of talent that there is in Pittsburgh. It's a cool town, too. I got to tell you, when I was a little kid and we drove through there, the sky was black from all of the steel work. You couldn't see anything. And when I came back to work with you, man, I came over that vista and saw the clear skies and all the bridges and the river. And I was it was like a magical land to to pull into Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah. I never I never got the what's what's the famous thing? Hell with the lid off. That's what they called it. Version of Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's what I, I forget. Somebody. Mark Twain, Groucho Mark, somebody um, called it. You'll have to look it up. Yeah, but I only ever got the the blue sky version and the lots of support for the arts and good restaurants and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, people who are not in the arts, when I hear about the arts being cut back in school, you know, it's not because I'm in the business. It's because I see what it does to people. And I see what it does to a kid in an after-school program or I see what any kind of expression where you're allowed to play and be alive and explore and be on an adventure changes you as a human being versus the idea of everything be administrative and structured. And, you know, all of that's important, but Mm -hmm. I do think that the creative arts has an awful lot to do with how a human 
grows up. And yeah. anybody who doesn't have access to things, which is there's a lot of privilege in theater in the mm-hmm. expense to go see it. So when they stop taking shows to schools for kids to see, it's a closed door to a heart. Yeah, definitely. Living here, it's the first time I've ever been, because I've mostly been on the East, East Coast. I've never been somewhere where there are truly like rural areas that don't have access to arts and Native American reservations that don't have huge access to all the arts and things like that. And so I think that's something that's sort of in the Guthrie's future is is figuring out ways to reach into those those rural areas because everyone should have access of all the arts. And it's it's challenging to be able to afford that and just even reach out to faraway places. I want to change the subject a little bit because I know that you worked on a podcast and mm-hmm. you yeah. did you write and direct that podcast? Yeah. Okay. So tell me the name of it and also what the experience was like to work in an audio only kind of theater where you're yeah. directing not in a proscenium theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, during the pandemic, we were all kind of trying all kinds of new things to figure out a way to keep telling our stories and expressing ourselves. And because my husband, Mike Delgadio, is a voice actor and he acts on a number of fictional podcasts. And I had just finished, I, I did my MFA with Point Park University in stage and screenwriting, which also included podcast writing. And I listen to a lot of fictional podcasts and I love them. I'm old enough that I do. I remember the end of the era of thriller theater on the radio and that kind of stuff, listening to that in the car with my mom driving home from guitar lessons. I thought, let's let's give this a go. And Mike, my husband, acts on a horror podcast called the No Sleep Podcast. And so I listened to that a lot. And I thought, I, I like a good horror story. Let me try my hand. And at the time, we were living along the shoreline of Connecticut in a very historical town that had an extraordinary graveyard that was from the colonial era with all famous graves of famous colonial people. And I thought, what a good setting for a horror story. So I wrote a podcast. The town we lived in is Fairfield, Connecticut. And so I I didn't call it Fairfield because some of it was making fun of the well-off privileged preppies of Fairfield. So it's called Newfield. It, it sort of bridges the worlds of that 16th century witch hunting time and modern day. And the two worlds converse in the graveyard. It was really challenging to write at first, to really kind of close my eyes mm. as I was writing in a way and keep writing until I knew that what was on the page was telling the story just with sound. Because in screenwriting, even more than theater writing, it's so visual and there's so many shortcuts you take as a writer because you know, the actor will like turn their head and raise their eyebrows. And that is a piece of writing right there. And certainly in screenwriting class, there had been so much drilled into me about show. Don't tell. Yeah. And podcast audio writing is very tell, don't show. And I've listened to enough fictional podcasts that they have relied too heavily on sound effects in a major moment of, of the story that you find yourself going, wait, who just died? And it's terrible. So I really wanted to make sure that it was super clear that um, everything that happened in the story. And then it was very eye-opening challenge to create it because we, we had great actors, but the hardest part was really putting it together with that oral landscape and 
that finding the balance between the right the writing of the dialogue and the oral landscape and some musical interludes mm-hmm. and building an arc to it and all the things that you have to do with just that one tool of what's realizable. How many episodes was it? It was really an experimentation. So we did two episodes of a half an hour each. It's just an hour long piece. Okay. And it's it's still available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. Yeah, we'll look for a new field. There's also the question of I haven't cracked the nut of how you make a dime making podcasts until you're one of the major ones. Because if you pay your artists, which I believe in, it's not a cheap proposition. And so making new field was just, you know, us throwing money out the window because we didn't make any money off of it. So I think you really have to invest in that form in the fictional podcast land that requires so much production that you'd really have to have to sign on to go the long haul before you started actually making your money back. Yeah. I mean, people ask me every time, how are you monetizing that? But, but they're asking it not because they concerned with me making money. They want to know whether they should do it. Right. Right. I'm thinking about having a podcast, but how do I make money doing it? And in my world, this is, these are adult play dates that I enjoy thoroughly because I get to network in all fields of the arts. And I really enjoy, I'm curious about so many people's creative process and what they do but there are all kinds of sideways that money comes in through speaking engagements and consulting and writing and hosting that have come because I never hung a shingle. All those years I was running my own race against the clock and kind of nobody knew what I did for a living. Mm-hmm. If people knew me as a stand-up comic, I was only a stand-up comic. If they knew me as a sitcom writer, right. that was all I did. So this kind of, I think, opened up at least the awareness that oh, I wasn't in Betty Ford and that... <laughs> That's helped my prospects a little bit. <laughs> Good. I'm not saying that's bad. I would happily go, but not for work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So having gone to the Guthrie and now taking this producer job, are you still able to be a freelance director or is this currently consuming you in a way that doesn't allow you to flex your directing muscle? I mean, it's currently consuming me because I'm on month two and it's a big job, but I think I would not have, taken one of these roles in a city that didn't have a vibrant theater community and without a boss who was open to me, not only working at my home theater, but at other things. I've gotten to the point where I'm definitely very choosy about what I want to go out of town for, or what kind of projects I want to work for, on. So I, th- I don't think it'll be a constant thing the way it was for a minute before the pandemic when I left city to be a freelance director. But I hope that when significant projects come along that I can surely take them. I also, I have um, a screenplay that I wrote during the pandemic um, that I'm very cautiously hopeful about that's kind of slowly moving down the road of with a production company. And it would be something for my, my brother is a director, a film and television director. And it would be something for us to direct together that I wrote. So I'm really hopeful for, and we'll see how that part of the, the entertainment industry goes. I, it's all like a hope and a dream on a, I don't know what the expression is, shoestring or something. Right. Well, it is interesting how everything feels like it's one thing, but they're all so different. That the movie business isn't an action-driven business in terms of, as you said earlier, telling a story visually and moving things along and foreshortening something when the next scene needs to be. Where even though theater can make leaps, they are different kinds of leaps. Just changing yeah. scenery 
and something rolling on and something rolling off, you have to find something to cover that time. Versus in the movies, you just snap your fingers and the guy's now on a beach. So I guess projection is helping that now. There's lots of theatrical tricks with LED light screens and all those kinds of things. But but I, I think that that's still the thing I love the best about the theater is that we put on a piece of a, a pillar and a window frame and a couch and there's no wall <laughs> downstage and everybody just accepts like I'm in a living room now, even though we're, you know, there's obviously missing all the walls and the roof and everything else. Yeah. And there's a door frame and, and we just go there. And I think it's one of the last places that the audience can participate in the telling of the story in that way, because they're making this big leap that that person just ran off stage and changed their clothes and came back on as a different person. Even though I know it's the same actor right. playing two different characters, I'm going to pretend like it's just the other character. So their imagination is part of the storytelling, which is kind of the most exciting thing. And I, I feel like I always say that's the theater that I'm most interested in is the most theatrical theater I know that sounds like a double whatever, but no, no, but but I understand what you mean. So it's like let's use the imagination. Yeah, let's use light. Let's use sound. Let's use things to make things come to life that don't exist on an empty stage. And going back to podcasts, the thing I like about podcasts that I can't remember who said, but the podcast, a fictional podcast, the stage of the fictional podcast is in your brain, and it's literally like you're listening through these headphones. And it's in your brain that you're creating what you're hearing from the words. Just like when you read a book, you have the movie of the book in your head when you're reading it. So those kind of things that you're participating in, the creation of the story in that way, I think are going to save the theater from going the way of the dinosaur. Because people do crave that, I think, mm -hmm. to a certain degree. And the movies and TV are a more relaxing art form because most of it is given to us. Yeah, but I think that's what I where I take umbrage with video games, which is there's great narrative stories in some of these games, but I feel like the secondary character for the player is the person who's pulling the guns out and shooting their way through the jungle. And I know that there's something neurologically that is a thrill, but mm -hmm. it's like if you threw this person in the middle of a jungle, they wouldn't survive for a week. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what I mean? We're designing yeah. these sort of... Mm -hmm. heroic adventures where you can die and come back to life and pick up another gun. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I think, I think now this is an old man speaking, but I feel like because of the cell phone, because of all this personal devices where you get to program your own music and do your own thing mm -hmm. that we're pushing away imagination. Like it used to be the death to stand in line at the DMV and you would yeah. have to dream up something to kill an hour. Right. But now you can email anybody, text anybody. You can do it in your car on the way there. You no can do, downtime. you know. So yeah. there's there's almost no incubation period in the life of a person yeah. anymore. Or time to just observe the world and humanity. Sitting on the subway, you used to have to just look at everybody and look at their behavior and look at their shoes and look at that weird person down the way and look at that hot person on the other side and you know whatever. And you're inventing their lives and using right. your imagination, but. I also have my big stickler thing, and I think I've influenced my children to not do this, but, you know, now that the kids can program their own playlists of, like, all the singles that they like the best, and they don't listen to the whole album, to me, that's just so criminal because, you know, you get an album, the first song you like the best 
is never the song that you forever like the best. It's mm. always the deep cut, the weird one that ends up being your favorite song on the album. And the journey of the album is what the musician intended for you to take as a journey. And as somebody who's programs whole seasons of plays, I always think about them as a journey for the audience. And I don't want you to just pick that one play that you think you're going to like. I want you to pick the journey because you're going to find the play that you never thought you'd like. And you end up being your favorite play you ever saw. And you go on the journey that I created for you. So that's my other umbrage with the cell phone world of perfect selection you can do in curation of exactly what you think you like. You don't know what you like. Well, I think that, you know, in a way you're talking about that observation of people and weirdos and all that. That is a little bit about the human condition where that could be me, that homeless guy, uh, what, what might make me be there. Mm -hmm. And that's where empathy is developed, all of those kinds of things. But when we can shut everything down, basically we're, we're not asking people to tell their story or we're not allowing ourselves to inform why they got there, whether that's success or failure or any number of things. It does feel like theater does that really well because Mm -hmm. between the writing and the directing, we are trying to pick moments or lives in crisis is at places where it makes a story interesting. Yeah. That's the hero's journey is to overcome those obstacles. In all of your playgoing days, is there underappreciated plays that people should be thinking about that they should see when they get a chance? Is there a, are there a couple of titles of shows that you go, hey, this this is one to see? I'll say one. There's so many, but I'll say one that I think particularly I always want to remount it and I never had the chance to it didn't do badly, but it just didn't, it hasn't gotten the heralding it deserves is Richard Greenberg's play three days of rain to me is one of the most perfect plays there is. It's one of my favorite plays when I got, you know, when I worked at Manhattan theater club, I was a like junior line producer and I got to work on that play. And at the time it starred the yet not famous as, as famous John Slattery, Brad Whitford and Patty Clarkson and directed by Evan Yanoulis. And it's a beautiful play that plays with time. And I love stories that play with time. I mean, it's set in two different eras and Mm -hmm. they kind of cross. It had a remount, I think at the roundabout with Julia Roberts. And I never saw that production, but it didn't, that one didn't do very well. And I just think it's one of the most perfect plays. And I'm a huge Richard Greenberg fan. I believe I saw it in Los Angeles in Orange County. It must've been in the preview headed that way because John Slattery was in it but I feel like John Tenney was the other yes, male that's role. Correct. Yeah. And what I, I really love the way they actually used rain. There was like a little huh. trickling of rain that was dropping into a little gutter for play going. It's really interesting to do a three character piece where you can take that much of a journey. And I love any story that makes you have to work a little to put the pieces together by the end. And the if the pieces can fall into place in the really smart way, you have an aha and that play has a big aha in it. And, you know, you have to pay attention and gather information from the first act to put it into the second act. And, and then you go, Oh, I get it. Oh my gosh. I didn't think of that. And I love those kind of plays. Yeah. Yeah. They, they reveal themselves to you. Yeah. And they also prompt discussion afterwards. I'll tell you up getting my MFA. I was researching what would be my big final play. And I, I came across an item that I had never known before, which is that while he was writing Dracula, Bram Stoker was the business manager to the great London theater empresario and owner of the Lyceum theater, Henry Irving. 
and his muse and sort of theatrical partner, Ellen Terry, who was the great leading lady of the day in the 1880s. And so Bram Stoker worked for Henry Irving while he was writing Dracula. And literary critics believe that the character of Count Dracula is loosely based on Henry Irving and the character of Mina, who's the female protagonist of Dracula, is loosely based on Ellen Terry. So I wrote a play called Stage Struck that is that their story coupled with, and this is back to my liking playing with time, in the 1980s in New York, 100 years later, a downtown theater troupe putting on a production of Dracula. Gotcha. And times cross. So that that's the play that I'm I'm really interested in in having a production of or directing myself somewhere. If anybody's right. looking for a good a good Dracula play. Good. You send me your Venmo and I'll buy the first ticket. Okay, thanks. And then you'll have to tell me when it when it's happening. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Anybody who wants to find out much more about you as a director, you do have a website which is tracybrigden.com and there's no e in Tracy. And you can certainly find out a lot more about the work she's done and the many theaters she's been involved with. I'm very grateful for your investing the time today. And I I can't wait to see what's going on for you with the Guthrie as things continue. Thank you, Pat. Great to talk to you. All right. Cheers. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage.